Let's just pray uh, briefly before we come back to that reading in, in Ephesians together. Father God, we thank you that you're a father who doesn't leave us uh, alone in the world. You're not distant, you're not absent. You leave us just to work it out on our own. But Lord, you are here with us. You grant us your word in which you reveal yourself, in which you reveal who you are and all that you've done and who we are and all that you call us to do in the world. You show us how, what it is to really live. And Lord, we thank you that you give us the ability to understand your word at times. That's challenging. Uh, but Lord, through your spirit, you give us the ability to understand your revelation of yourself. And so this morning, as we come to your word, again, we come hungry in some ways that we know and in many, many more that we don't even realize, uh, places that we don't even realize we need to once again hear your word. So Lord, this morning, we pray that you might feed us, that Lord, we might come to understand that bit more of who you are, that we might come to love you that bit more, that we might find strength for the next week that you send us into for the opportunities that you will uh, put around us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you might uh, minister through me this morning and that you might be working uh, within each one of us, I pray. Amen. Well, I had meant last week to address marriage, family and, and work in a, in a sort of large passage but it all it all sort of fits together paul has shown us previously in his in his letter to ephesians here we've had the first three chapters of some really sort of deep and rich uh, theological sort of themes that is that it's it's words directly about god about who he is and about who we are as a result and it kind of dispels this myth because now we've we've made this transition into paul now talking about well how does this work out in life what does this really actually do to your everyday living? And so one of the things we've said over the course of this, and it bears sort of repeating again, is this idea that theology is somehow unimportant to everyday life is nonsense. For Paul here, it's absolutely crucial. In fact, it's the first place he goes to. He wants to uh, challenge and to reimagine what you think so that then what you do would come into alignment with that. As the old Heineken beer advert used to go, get the head right, the rest will follow. That's what Paul would say. And so that's what we've seen. But then into chapter 4, we get the first imperative that Paul uses. For you, those of you who have sort of finished your sort of school uh, English lessons, that's a, a command. Up to that point, we've only had indicatives. That is, we've only had things that have been statements. It said things about God and about who you are. Then into chapter 4, we get the transition. And if we were sort of missing a few commands, and think, oh, where's the practical application? Well, you got more than enough of it, because Paul has given us reams and reams of the stuff, hasn't he? And he's shown in chapter 4, 17 to 5, 21, that the gospel changes your conduct. That's the expectation. But now, secondly, he wants to show a connected thing, but a slightly different thing from 5.22 to 6.9, and that's where we'll finish off today, that he's shown that the gospel changes not only your conduct, but your relationships. 
And, and these are three separate sections here, a section on marriage, a section on family, and a section on work. Actually, that's to be read as one unified section. And, you know, if I was a decent preacher, you know, we would have done that in one sort of sermon. But as it is, you'll get two sort of substandard sermons on it. But it's one section because they're the three core kind of relationships that will organize most of your lives. And we've said already that, for, okay, for a lot of you maybe here sat in the room and sat on showcases this morning with you, I'm not married or I'm not married yet or I don't know if I'm ever going to be married I maybe don't have children don't know if if I will or not or I've finished working or I'm not quite working yet no that that's okay one day you might be married perhaps you'll certainly know friends who are whom you can support and love throughout it's good for you to hear that too you may not have children at the minute but you may well have kind of uh, there's lots of different routes to parenting isn't there you you may be able to support children around in your family you may have uh, because you're sort of adoptive parents too in different ways there are lots of different ways in which you may work that out You, you may not work in a paid capacity but you may volunteer in different ways you may make a home and that's very valuable work too. I, I want you hopefully to see that actually in some way it really is relevant to you, whatever your place in life. But what Paul wants to show us here is that the good news of the gospel calls us to this radical new life where everything changes. But why? Why, why now make this transition to speak of these relationships? Well, uh, although marriage and family and work is given here, actually... Our tendency is to think that these are really everyday and and ministry and mission and and, and discipleship kind of happens outside of them. It's this thing beyond and bigger and further afield. And what Paul wants to show you is uh, actually here's here's the space in which you live out all of these things. This, This thing that you're tempted to think is so everyday and mundane and unimportant and just like the add-on thing that you have, oh yeah, I'm also parent, also have family, also work here. No, no, this, this is the space in which you work out your faith. So firstly, let's look at uh, what Paul says about family here in these first four verses. And he says, um, parents, you may want to sort of uh, record this yourselves for personal sort of edification and usage at home, uh, capture it on your smartphone or something. Children, Obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. In family, as well as marriage and the church, which we've already seen and spoken about, there is a God-given order. We've said that actually earlier in chapter 4, we see a God-given order over the church. That that God gives leaders whom he gives gifts. and, And what are they to do? Well, they're to serve the body and to equip the body. But there's an order there. We've seen in marriage that there is an order to it. We've seen that that might not look like some of the cultural expectations we may be used to, but that there is a headship of the husband who, in loving service and sacrifice, gives himself up for his wife in order to serve. But there's a distinction of roles. There's a God-given order. And just as in the church and in uh, the marriage, in family too, there's a God-given order order. Now, this might seem okay for the culture at the time. Okay, the culture at the time is quite happy with hearing the idea of husbands being head of their wives. Very happy with that idea. Okay, that's nothing new. Very happy with the idea of uh, fathers being the head of their home and their children obeying them. 
yes. But what Paul is doing, as we were saying last week, is doing something much more gracious. And so on the one hand, it may seem as though, well, he's just saying something that would fit perfectly naturally in this culture. Actually, what Paul is doing with it is something completely unexpected for his time and his culture. It's much more gracious. John Stott, writing about the culture in which that uh, Paul writes and says, in Jewish and Greco-Roman world, honoring parents was second only to honoring God. In fact, some writers said that parents were like gods to their children. Two such examples of sort of secular writers at the time. Philo says, parents, in my opinion, are to their children what God is to the world. And Josephus, famous historian, says, honor to parents, the law ranks second only in honor to God. And what Paul is doing here for his culture, he writes in, is going to be countercultural because it's going to be more gracious. And we're going to see that in detail as, as we go through this. But what he says is going to be countercultural to us in a different way because it's going to be more ordered than we might think. Because is this not the truth so often today that actually the, the opposite has become true? If, if in Paul's day, in the Greco-Roman world, in Jewish culture, there was this tendency that, that uh, parents become almost like God to their children, isn't the tendency today that children have become to parents what God is to the world? Don't you see that around you? Don't you hear that? Don't you hear that, parents, as, as you're trying to parent your children, that that, that is the, the sort of ideals that's put out there? That is a sort of expectation? I know I hear it. So now we should maybe pause to ask the number one question, as parents you probably hear, and uh, I wouldn't even want to take a guess at how many times a day, but of Why? Why? Why should children obey here? We're going to get a couple of answers. Here's the first one, though. Children, obey your parents. Why? For it is right. The weather actually is righteous. It's a correct response to obey your parents. This might feel like a disappointing answer. I don't know if this feels quite a lot like an answer that you may have been, I suppose it depends what kind of age you are, um, and, and just your upbringing, but whether you were ever familiar really with the uh, almost infallible and flawless line of logic you may have got from your parents in a, any given instruction, why should I do that? Because I said so. And as a child, that feels deeply dissatisfactory. Because I said so. Why? What makes you the person to say so? And yet, you may, like me, have been very familiar with those words. I, But you also may be a parent who thinks, I'm trying desperately hard not to revert back to that. I'm trying to go through all this kind of uh, logical gymnastics to try to explain what we're doing all the time. And they're just not getting it because they're just resisting. Well, don't do that because that's dangerous. Well, don't do that because this thing here is a better option. Or, well, how about we do this thing? Or, oh, let's distract you with this. And you may try all of this kind of gymnastics to avoid getting to the place of just saying, because I said so, because you you don't want to become like your parents. It's like the most cringeworthy moment, isn't it? When you actually realize... That is exactly what my mum used to say. But that is exactly what my dad used to do. And yet you can't help it. It just comes out. Because I said so. And here's the thing. 
all of that stuff, of course, is good. And, of course, there's, there's valid reasons why you might want to explain your rationale, why you might want to bring your children along in your thinking, why you want to be sort of nurturing and things. And maybe you might want to err more on the side of trying to uh, push towards positive options rather than negative. But I think if we're all honest, and that's just I'm exceedingly useless at parenting, which is very possible, um, but I suspect that I'm, I'm not, so that it's much more common. But there is a reality that you can do all of that. But it didn't work. <laughs> At some point, it didn't stop them saying, why? Why? <laughs> why? And you laugh because you know that's happened. You've been there. You're trying desperately hard, but there's still why. And here's, sometimes it is right to hear, because I said so. Because there is a God-given order. And do you know what that does? Do you know why that's important? Because sometimes it is right for you as an adult to hear, because I said so. We live in a culture that has gone completely against authority figures, haven't we? That says, question authority. Now, don't hear me wrong. Of course, it's, it's right to question why you're told to do. You shouldn't just blindly and blanketly obey without ever thinking. Of course not. That's what cults encourage, isn't it? Don't think, just do. No, of, of course not. But there is God-given order. It's actually a mark of holiness. It's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of discipleship to be able to be led. Leaders aren't those people that can just never be told. Those aren't leaders at all. Leaders actually are really good first at being led. They're really good at doing what they were asked. Used to have a boss who uh, would, uh, you know, he was trying to run the company like a glorified kind of mishmash of like Google, some ideas from there, and uh, like The Apprentice and different things. So we'd have all these like little contests at times for promotions and things. And there were some people, bless them, who would put so much effort into things. You think, why is it that they never get there? I remember asking him about the one particular person to try, well, why have you never sort of like found something for them? Because they're always trying so hard, like they'd give everything to it. Could you not just carve out something for them? I remember him saying, and he was dead right, Dominic, the thing is, he does what I didn't ask him to do. The work that he put in on that, I didn't ask him to do that. I asked him to do this thing, and he went off and did that. I need people who can just do what I asked them to do. Because I said so. Why should you obey? Because it's right. It's the right response to the gospel. And I hope you notice that, actually, what that's doing, and that's quite important, is it is expecting that children of believers actually are being treated as if they're in the people of God already. It's calling for a response as if they are believers, as if they are followers of Jesus already. Do you see that? Otherwise, why would it appeal to obey your parents? Because it's right. It's the right thing to do before God. There's an order within the church, there's an order within marriage, and then there's an order here in the family. And why is this so? Why are parents given for children? Why are children also given for parents? Well, it's for one another's flourishing, just as in all those other areas. You know, and here's the thing. We've recognized as adults, mainly, you know, when we've been listening to this and going through Ephesians, that that is hard, is it not? It is actually quite difficult to obey Jesus, isn't it? 
We want to. We know that's right. But we find that hard. Now, take heart, because even Paul does. Romans chapter 7 is his whole sort of honest exposing himself, saying, I really want to do what's right. I know what's right. I, I love what's right. I want to do it, but I find myself not doing it. I know what's wrong. I hate what's wrong. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I find myself sometimes doing it. We find it hard to obey. So, won't it be natural for children to? It's a struggle to obey, to not get that right all the time, to not find that easy. And so we must be gracious too, must we? That actually, why would it be any different for my children than it would be for me? That I find it hard to obey Jesus, they will find it hard too. And they'll find it hard to obey me as a given authority. You know, none of this is popular in 2021, is it? Where we tended to go more towards child-led approaches. And of course, there's some wisdom in some of that, isn't there? It's a recognition of wanting to recognize different personalities, different abilities, different uh, natures in children, and trying to work with that and rather, of course, that's, that's right, isn't it? But we've gone further than that to a child-led approach, and God's order is often subverted. But Paul quotes here, he gives this command from Scripture, doesn't he? He's quoting from Exodus chapter 20, honour your father and mother, a commandment given to the people of God. He wants to show us this is a biblical, this is a historical expectation. This isn't just Paul saying it. This is the way it has always been. And we get two connected ideas in these verses about obedience in verse 1 and honour in verse 2. It's fitting that Paul would use these words. If you cast your mind back to last week and to thinking about marriage, and if you are married to your marriage vows, and if you've even just attended uh, a a wedding, you will remember them of love and honouring and sometimes not always, but uh, obeying. To love, to honour, to obey. Do you know, if children see these happening in the home, in your marriage... If they see them interacting between the mum and the dad, they'll follow. If they don't see that in one another, those same virtues, those same characteristics, why would they replicate something they're not seeing? Mothers, wives, if, if you graciously, humbly submit to your husband, chances are so will your children. Fathers, husbands, if you honour and serve and sacrifice for your wife, chances are, so will your kids. You see that. Isn't that one of the hardest things in parenting, that when you start to spot your bad behaviour coming out in the kids? And it's hard to really tell them off that hard when you know that you're looking yourself and perhaps you'll have that dynamic as well where all of a sudden you find that when they've done something wrong they're your kids (laughs) your son has done this (laughs) your daughter has said this it's hard isn't it when you start to see that actually it's a little bit of me coming out there's that reality if they see that love that honor that respect that sacrificing between one another they're so much more likely to produce that themselves. You know, it's right for children to be loved and supported, to be a crucial sort of part of your life. They're a good gift, but children are lousy gods, and they ought not be the complete centre of the home. 
everything is not about your children. And I know that as you hear that, that will feel abrasive and that will feel very different to what the world says. And on one hand, you'll want to kick back against that and you'll not like it. But if you're in good, everything is not all about the kids. If, if you want the best for them, it has to not all be about A lot will be about them, but it has to not all be about them. Here's the second answer. Why should children obey parents? Answer number two, look at verses two to three there with me. Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live a long time in the land. It is good for children. It is good for parents. It is good for the community beyond even your home when love, respect and honor and obedience are in the home. We're raising Adults. One parenting author called uh, Reggie Joyner writes about this, about raising adults. He says, you're not raising kids, you're raising adults. The point is there is a countdown to adulthood that's happening for toddlers and for teenagers, and the clock isn't going to stop. The real question is what kind of adult you're raising. That question should motivate us to start relating to our kids with an end in mind. He goes on to say, actually, the best way you can make sure your kids grow up to be unhappy adults is to give them whatever makes them happy as kids. But if you want them to be fulfilled as adults, then give them responsibilities. It sounds really harsh at first, doesn't it? But actually, what it's trying to do is to build and to encourage and to help your children flourish to be adults. So it requires a different kind of thinking, doesn't it? But it's good for children. It's good for parents. It's good for the community around us, for these things to be there. And yet, there's a really serious caveat here, isn't there? Verse 4, as we come to the end of this section here. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a serious caveat because in the culture to which Paul writes here, there was this tendency for fathers to be abusive. They're happy with the idea of fathers sort of running the home and being an authority. That's quite okay. But the problem was that that would be misused and it would be used to abuse others in the home. Again, John Stott, writing about fatherhood at the time, says that at the head of the Roman family was the pater familias, the father of the family, who exercised a sovereign authority over all members of the family. He held a full right of disposal over his children as over slaves and things. Another writer says a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty upon his child. So here is this tendency to actually take this to really abusive and, and harmful places. And so Paul gives this caveat here. Don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you might ask it, well, why are any fathers addressed here? Why is, why is it not speaking to parents plural here? Well, I think this is, this is corrective, isn't it? And it's clear, considering the role of the father in Roman life, that they were more likely to be abusive. But secondly, it might also be addressing a problem then that certainly society has now of the under-fathering of children, of absent fathers, sometimes because they have just left the home, sometimes because they're there, but they're functionally absent. 
And in a context where fatherhood could very often look like authority and demands, it's here reimagined with this responsibility for nurture and for development. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's raising the expectations upon fathers, especially for their investment in their children. And so there's two commands, isn't there? Firstly, don't provoke to anger. The word there is literally about uh, uh, poking someone. You know, and, and you'll see this with your kids, won't they? The, uh, those moments where they, they've got to get there and just poke one another and annoy each other. Just get up in the face. And that's what it's talking about. It's talking about it, that proximity, being up in someone's face to deliberately annoy them. Don't provoke them to anger. That may seem obvious now. Hopefully it does, but it was countercultural then. And then the second instruction there is about discipline and instruction. Bring them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. That is, disciple them. Bring them up to be followers of Jesus from children. Once um, uh, had a friend back in, in Wales who I came to know, and and he had had you know really really no experience with the church and stuff. And so when um, his little boy started coming to our toddler group. He was really panicky at the beginning um, because, and he said to me then afterwards, after he had first sort of like come along and checked us out and things, um, I was really worried that, you know, you'd just be brainwashing kids, you know? And uh, so I wanted to come along and, and see what you're doing because I was worried what my son was getting into, you know? I don't want him to be getting into a car. I was like, <laughs> Richard, really, it's, it's fine. We... <laughs> We have some toys, we give them some biscuits, and we sing some songs. It's, it, it's, it's really not brainwashing them. But do you see that panic that is there? Because I think probably he's only saying something that a lot of people may feel. That, ooh, is this a bit strange? That you, you're sort of impressing ideas upon kids. You're not giving them the chance to work them out for themselves. But let me tell you this, that if you're not discipling your children now, the culture already is. It is already discipling. Don't, don't imagine that the culture is neutral. It's one of the things we've been talking about over the course of this letter of Ephesians, isn't it? The culture has a message. It has a worldview that it's always putting out to you in the channels that it has. Don't for a second think that it's in any way neutral, that somehow not discipling your kids and, and bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord is, is somehow just leaving it neutral. It's not. It's leaving the culture to do the discipling. Instead, we need a kind of gospel view of parenting as we finish this section here. It's about, you know, raising disciples. Uh, it was a central part of the growth of the people of God in the Old Testament and the kingdom of God today. And so what difference would it make to parent with the gospel at the forefront of our parenting? Well, I don't want to sort of overstate it too much or to be too dramatic it would change the city we live in. To raise children with that idea of, of family, to know that they are sons and daughters of God first, that they don't need to strive to find any other identity in life. They're not going to need to try to use work or the gifts that they have to try to build an identity for themselves. But that first and foremost, their identity is that they are loved sons and daughters of God. That they're not going to need to find that in any other thing, any other person, any other role in life, knowing that they'll never be more loved than they are in Christ, that they'll always belong to him, that they'll always have a home with him, 
with their sons and daughters. Or to be, to raise children to know that they're called to be learners, to be disciples of Jesus, even from their youth. To, to know that they can find wisdom for anything they may face in life in God through the Spirit. To know that they're called in life to be servants of God. To find life by giving their life. To know from an early age that actually you don't find life by accumulating things for yourself. Whether things, experiences, or people. You don't find life in that. You find life in giving out of it. That actually the gifts that God gives you are given for you to be able to serve him. They're given for you to be able to serve the world that you're in. That you'll really find yourself in using what God has given you for his ends. That you'll find an identity and a life and a joy and a purpose in him. What would it be to know that actually in all of life you'd be witnesses to God. To see all of life as a gift from God in which you have this chance to enjoy and to know him and to see him. And to point others to him through all that you do in your work and in your rest and in your play even. How do we change the world? Well, we often think it's big programs, big initiatives, uh, things that seem so far off and so hard to join in and seem so disconnected to everyday life. But the most simple, the most effective, the most everyday way is to raise children in the promises of God from their youth, to raise up disciples. Why is it that we seem to be happy sometimes to leave everything to desperately trying to convert people who've lived for years of their lives not in these promises, when actually you have this opportunity right before you to raise up disciples from birth. What we're doing as parents then really matters. It really counts. It's not just this side thing that comes after your work or whatever else that's your main identity. It's really central. The gospel here reimagines parenthood and has this effect of, of raising Christians, not, not, not just waiting to convert Adults, people making the most of their life. We celebrate those stories, don't we? And it's right to do that in a way, those kind of prodigal son stories of people coming to faith after a life of, of, of making loads of mistakes and everything else. And that's amazing. And we see God's grace in that. But do you know what? I really rejoice and celebrate when I hear a story of someone who did the opposite of me and actually, do you know what? Made the most of their life. I didn't waste years of it. I look back and think, if only I could have not wasted so much of my time. If only I could have got this sooner. I really wish I could have spent that time better. What a wonderful story it is to hear a story of someone saying, do you know what? I've just kind of always, from so long ago, I can't really point to one moment, just always being brought up, trying to follow Jesus. And it's just been a gradual journey for me. What an amazing story that is, that actually someone would be making the best use of their life, even from a young age. Parenting counts. It counts more than you know and more than culture would tell you. In fact, why don't we just pray briefly for those who are parents, those who will be parents. Let's pray God's blessing and help and strengthening on you. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful gift it is to be given children in lots of different forms, in lots of different ways in which we can spiritually parent children. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity and responsibility. And Lord, we pray for the children connected with us as part of Grace Church. And Lord, we pray for your blessing and your flourishing in their lives. Lord, we pray that they might be able to have a story uh, of knowing you from a young age, of giving their lives at a tender age and, and making the most of all that you give them. And knowing what it is to grow up into the promises of God. 
Lord, we pray for those who are parents in all those kind of different forms and grandparents and uh, uncles and aunts and everything else, people who are uh, supporting different children in different ways. Lord, we thank you for those wonderful opportunities that, that we have, Lord, to serve these little people. And Lord, help us, because this task is really hard. And we, I think, probably all know a sense of, wow, it's really tough to, to really do that. We, we need your help. And so, Lord, again, as we have so many times through this journey, through this letter, come to you just acknowledging, Lord, we, we need your strengthening. Lord, Lord, strengthen us, fill us. Give us your wisdom and your grace. Give us your spirit to know how to, how to do this. How to raise young adults into the promises of God. How to help direct them and, uh, and instruct them in a way that sees them flourish. We pray for your help. And we thank you for the gift it is to get to do it. Amen. So he thinks of family, and then secondly, he thinks about work here in verses 5 to 9. He tells us here, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And Paul here is going to completely reshape working life and the workplace. But, you know, it, you will have found it difficult, probably, won't you, have heard, hearing that word, slaves. Isn't that a difficult word to hear, isn't it? I think we're at least somewhat more aware today of some of the horrors of slavery through the ages and some of the negative legacy that has come with that. And we've rightly sort of, uh, certainly at least, I know it does sadly still happen in some forms, but at least legally is uh, rejected uh, as I think quite rightly. But it's hard to hear that, isn't it? Slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Paul speaking here to slaves is unprecedented. If you see that, it's unprecedented because slaves were not seen as worth addressing. Even though slavery was so incredibly pervasive in the ancient world, it would have been unthinkable for Paul to even bother addressing them. And John Stott writing on this says, it has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. Perhaps as much as 80% of the population were in some form of slavery. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants, manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Some of those sort of administrators of states could be... Um, presiding over great amounts of wealth and property. Uh, it was at times actually a skilled job. And bear in mind that the sort of idea of a, a middle class, of those who are not owned really or owners, just kind of somewhere in the middle, starting to be able to gain some sort of property and freedom for themselves, doesn't exist until around the 16th century in Western Europe. So a huge swathe of people many of whom you might not necessarily think of when you hear that kind of word, were classed as slaves. So that one writer on slavery uh, says this, the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that we cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. So what can we say about this? Well, firstly, slavery is wrong. It is wrong. Secondly, scripture does not support it. I hope that's self-evident. Uh, perhaps that's a sermon for another day, because that's not primarily Paul's sort of thought and argument here, but Scripture does not support it. However, we have this challenge that slavery did exist at this point, the system that is operating, and that slavery was so widespread 
that almost everyone other than the absolute elite in the culture were slaves. Almost every one of us this morning would have been seen as a slave in some form. So when Paul speaks of slaves here and, and masters, as we try to sort of apply this to our own everyday life, which of course is, is very different, quite rightly, slavery has been abandoned and, and, and abolished, uh, apart from obviously some very shameful elements where that is going on under cover, uh, sadly. But we might best think of this instead in terms of the sort of dynamics between employer and employee, in terms of trying to think about our own life. But isn't there still this challenge that Paul doesn't seem to oppose slavery here? Perhaps we'd be hoping that he would just outright say that slavery as a system should, should be gone just from there and then. And at least from the sort of words as we see it here, it doesn't seem as though he's doing that. So how do we make sense of that? How do we sort of come to terms with that? Because I think it is a bit of a problem, isn't it? And I, I, we would want to be clear, wouldn't we, that we would in no way support that sort of system. We would in no way sort of think that, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad, we could bring it back, I guess. We, we would want to really distance ourselves from it, wouldn't we? Quite rightly, William Hendrickson, another commentator, says this, and trying to explain what Paul's doing, he says, his rule amounted to this. Let the slave uh, wholeheartedly obey his master, and let the master be kind to his slave. Thus, the ill will, dishonesty, and laziness of the slave would be replaced by willing service, integrity, and industry. The cruelty and brutality of the master, by considerateness and love, slavery would be abolished from within, and a glorious, gloriously transformed society would replace the old. And so what Paul's doing here, by changing the way in which they relate to one another, although the terms are still there, is to completely redefine them, so much so that what we're really talking now about is an employment situation. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That's the same logic that Paul has used with marriage and with family, that children are to obey their parents, for it is right, the Lord. The wives are to submit to their husbands, as to Christ, that husbands are to love their wives, as Christ did the church. Your view of Christ is to shape that response of slave to master, of employee to employer. It reimagines work, doesn't it? Reimagines work as a place not where I meet my needs. Of course, it's right to work. You need, invariably in life, to make a certain amount of money in order to be able to put a roof over your head, to put food on the table. Of course it is. But primarily, the focus isn't to meet my needs. Or to meet my needs of sort of uh, building myself up. It's not a place where I go to find my identity, but how I serve God. It's a place in which I serve the world that I live in. And so now Paul gives us two ways in which we can know that our working maybe isn't being done as for the Lord, as he calls us to here. Listen to these. In verse 6 here, it says, Not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers. There's the two ways there. Not to do it just being, when you're being watched, or just to get attention, not to do it by way of eye service. You'll know perhaps in your workplace of busy work. You know what that is? That's when you want to look 
very busy whilst doing something relatively easy, uh, normally of fairly limited value, if not just outright unnecessary in some ways, but it has to be done. It's one of those things, isn't it? But you think, you know, you'll be able to at least look like you're really busy, you're getting on with things. Back in one of my jobs in the call centre uh, debt management, there were a number of ways in which you could get busy work done. My favourite was the tea run. If you do tea run to sort of 15 to 20 people, that's going to take a good five, 10 minutes at least. Uh, about three to four minutes of that, just watching a kettle, which for me, I say something about my personality, that's deep mindfulness and wellness for me. Just watching a kettle do seemingly nothing was really relaxing and, and cathartic. Or you could perhaps, I didn't do this one, this used to frustrate me, but there's my hypocrisy. When people would call a sort of short list of people who we know we haven't had answers from and deliberately call, it goes to voicemail and leave a voicemail, just the most utterly pointless piece of work, but that technically needs doing and it's going to kill a good 30, 45 minutes for you. Or perhaps you could go to the uh, opening the post, most of which was just complete junk, dominoes, sort of adverts and things. Or one of my favourites actually was on a Friday afternoon, I would do a bit of call coaching as I was managing because that would get me off the phone. Uh, and then all you have to do is tell people where their phone call wasn't very good. Uh, so that's really, really easy. There's in every job, I suspect, busy work. Work that's not really achieving anything but we all know someone's got to do, and there's some people who love to do it just to look busy, and they can't be sacked for doing what they have to do. Peter Crouch talks about, even in football, you know, some of the stretches that they do before even properly warming up is typical busy work. It does nothing. It's not a proper stretch. It's not doing anything for them. It's just they don't want to be that guy who looks like they're doing nothing at work, uh, with, you know, 50,000 people sort of aware of it and shouting at them. Don't be just doing it by way of eye service. Don't be doing busy work, the work wholeheartedly. Don't be people pleasers. You know, those people who shift the whole balance of their work towards just pleasing others, rather than what's good, rather than what's needed, rather than what's right. It's all about what the boss likes so that they can get more favour. The classic example of this, of course, is the teacher's pet, isn't it? It's the one who wants to be seen as always doing what's right, more so than others, because they perceive that somehow they're going to get a little bit more favour than other pupils. And of course, we know this doesn't really happen, does it? I mean, I conducted a little bit of independent research this week with some teaching friends. Of course, it doesn't at all there's no more favorable treatment but it plays out in different ways there's perhaps the attempted offering of uh, cards and gifts as what i might describe as a sort of a soft bribe uh, which if anything just becomes you know burdensome uh, i think or perhaps in the effort to uh, knock down other people's reputations to then sort of by extension build up your own uh, reputation before the teacher you might offer to become a sort of informant on other people's and uh, one uh, to leave him anonymous uh, respondent let's for the sake of argument call him uh, Dieter Birkwood uh, said, you know, they, they took a very withering view of this, this sort of uh, willingness to offer to become informant on friends that, you know, nobody really likes a grass, do they? And yet, it, despite how kind of cringy it is, we all know that there can be this attempt. And yet, where's this sort of going? Well, we all actually know we've probably worked with some adults who've never really lost the habit of trying to be the teacher's pet, who, you know, 
terrible sycophants and just can never say anything bad about the boss, at least to their face. But Paul is calling us here not for working when we're seen, not for trying to be people pleasers, but because we're servants, the word actually is slaves, verse 7, of Christ. The reality is we are slaves of Christ, not to other people. As we're not to work hard because we might gain favor with that other person, or because even they said so, but because we're servants of Christ, and we're really serving him. And that drives our action. Interestingly for Paul, that idea of being a servant of Christ, not people, doesn't lead him to a rebellion. Quite the opposite. It leads him to being willing to serve, willing to be humble, and to obey authority. So Paul gives us two ways in which we can know that our work really isn't being done as it is for the Lord, by way of our service, or as people pleases. Now he gives us two ways in which we can see that our working really is being done as if it's for the Lord. Look at verses 6 to 7 there with me. Doing the will of God from the heart. That's the first one. Rendering service with good will. There's the second. And there's the motivator finally. As to the Lord and not to men. Doing the will of God from our hearts, wholeheartedly, committedly, not just to earn favour or to please our boss when they're looking, and rendering service with a good will. Will have all perhaps been in places where someone just seemed to be completely miscast. You know, someone who's working in a in a restaurant or a coffee shop, and they are stressful jobs, of course, and this is probably why, but who just seem to hate people. <laughs> you just think. I don't know how you kind of wound up here because <laughs> you're clearly not enjoying this. And now by extension, nor are we because <laughs> it's just really obvious you, you, you don't want to be here. Uh, I have half a mind to almost just go back into the kitchen myself and do it because I, you know, I really don't mind. Service with goodwill. As to the Lord and not to man. Doing the will of God from the heart. Service with a goodwill. It's a totally different view of work, isn't it? It's a view of work that's saying, actually, all work is sacred. All work is doing God's work. Not just working for a church or for a Christian charity or Christian organization or being a missionary. Actually, all work is sacred. All work is doing God's work where you are, wherever that may be. That's a completely different view of work. That's far bigger, isn't it? But secondly, it's a, it's a different view of work in saying my work isn't to serve my needs, but it's about serving my community and serving God. This is a way through which I can use my God-given skills and ability and training to bless and to serve others and him. Martin Luther writing on work and the importance and the value of it. So this is a cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they're all alike consecrated priests and bishops, and everyone by means of his work or office must benefit and serve every other, that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. And listen to this even more so. He says, look, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. Do you see that? That actually your work is your ministry. 
your work is, your mission field, whatever it is that you're doing at this point in time. And so it's a different way entirely to think of it. It's a higher dignity and, and value to it. That work isn't just this, oh yeah, that's that sort of other thing I do that's not as important, not as sacred as sort of what we do on a Sunday. Actually, no, what we do on a Sunday is aiming to build you up and encourage you and feed you again so you can go out and fulfill your ministry wherever it is that you're working that out. So we find through the sacrifice of the gospel that it calls us to here, that it leads us to this sort of submission and service, not rebellion. And yet, we find it always pays off, and it never shortchanges us. Look at the last two verses here as we come towards the close here. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. It always pays off, it never shortchanges us. What do you do if you have a bad boss? Isn't that hard? As a Christian, I've been in that place where you work for a boss who's just not good. It's stressful. It's frustrating. Sucks a lot of joy in your life at times, perhaps. What do I do if I have a bad boss? And it's not easy to serve as the Lord. It's not easy to serve the will of God from my heart. It's not easy to do it with service with a good will. It's not easy to avoid just the sort of people-pleasing and eye service. It's really tempting to do the eye service thing and just phone it in. What do I do? What do I do if I'm actually working for a bad boss or a bad company even? Well, don't do it for them. Look to Jesus who repays you fairly. Now, that's not to say that you might very well raise a complaint about um, mistreatment in the workplace. Of course Maybe times where you very much need to do that. That's not to say that you should just blanketly accept being mistreated or abused. No, you, you shouldn't. You should know your value that you ought not to just accept that. And for the sake of others, you might want to raise that so that others don't receive that, maybe even more so than yourself. But there's a point at which, when it's hard, when you don't want to, which we all have those moments, don't do it for them. But do it as for Jesus. And yet, look at this way that Paul finishes here, which is even more shocking, I think, for his culture hearing this. Masters do the same. We said before, and it it might have felt at the time like it was still a bit of a cop-out, that Paul is kind of destroying slavery from the inside, rather than just outright saying slavery is wrong, and in some ways it would be easier and neater if he'd said that. Instead, he's destroying it from the inside by completely redefining the roles of employment and and that relationship. And that may have seemed like a cop-out, but here is where I think it really totally is not at all, because he's saying here, masters do the same. The masters to serve and to work not by way of eye service, not by way of people pleasing, but as to God. To be serving the will of God from the heart, a service with a good will, will mean that all of the expectations and negative things that are connected with slavery actually would have to, by nature, be completely anathema, wouldn't they? To to be following the the will of God from the heart and service with a good will would be anathema to, to do any of those abusive things that are marked out with slavery, wouldn't it? Masters do the same. They would not have expected that a master would have to render the same service. The idea of, oh, lazy slaves who don't do their jobs properly, who are thieving from the boss, 
ought to do their job properly. And we know this is a thing because we even have the letter of Philemon where there's an issue around this of a slave who has uh, absconded and run off. And Paul has to intervene and write and say, no, 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 please, you know, forgive him. We've forgiven him. It's, it's fine. Quite okay to see it being said to the employee. Yeah, you ought to work better. But here, you ought to do exactly the same, masters. You ought to be a good boss. It raises the responsibility and expectation you need. You must be a good boss. You, just as husbands in the home, and just as fathers and mothers in the home with children, and, uh, and just as leaders in the church, your job is to help others flourish. Masters, your job is to help your employees flourish. That's completely countercultural logic. And stop your threatening. Not to lead through fear, coercion, or abuse anymore. He who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Do you see, so the way in which this can be destroyed is that actually, you are both slaves of Christ. Whether the employer or the employee, you are both slaves of Christ, first and foremost. You do not own yourselves, let alone others, because you are owned by God. And in that, now creates this equality between them. Could be effective it. For masters to treat slaves in the same way is completely shocking. What he's outlining, outlining here is equality. And so it would be completely wrong to say that Paul supports slavery and use him to defend it. If slaves and masters relate in this way, then functionally... Slavery ends, and this is a form of employment. And so, no, Paul might not outright call an end to the system here, and, and in a way, it would be, be easier, perhaps, if he had done that, especially in terms of losing the kind of slave uh, master titles. But what he teaches here so changes the view of each other as to fundamentally end it there and then. Unfortunately, the reality we know is in the world, there is favorable treatment for some, isn't there? He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him, but we know in the world there is, isn't there? Sometimes the workplace is a place that isn't fair, that isn't equitable. But sometimes there's a higher threshold of forgiveness for certain people than others. Sometimes in line with your resources or your influence. And yet, not so with Christ. So do your work knowing that it's for Christ, but do you work as to Christ? Sometimes we think that joining the mission of God for the advance of his kingdom is something sort of so far off, and how, how could I possibly be part of it and find you know, time for it in my busy life and my busy schedule? But what we find here is that the gospel completely rewrites our relationships with the people closest to us that see us the most. And the gospel changes cities by first changing people. And the opportunity to join the mission of God and to advance the kingdom is with the people right next to us. It's in the place we already are. It's in the places we already spend our time. Let me pray. And then in a few moments we'll sing our closing song, Be Thou My Vision. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful love towards us. We've begun this morning by thinking about the reality that you are our good Father and that we are your children. Lord, we thank you 
that you have decided to love us in that way. And Lord, we pray for your help to be able to live out of the wonderful good news it is that you've given to us that changes all of our life and all of our relationships and all of our work and our time and everything that we do and help us, Lord, in the places that you've put us, in the people that you've put us around, the positions of responsibility and different sort of areas of life that you've given us. Help us in all of that, Lord, to look to you, to find strength, to do that out of who you say that we are and all that you have done for us. Lord, to do it in loving service of you, but also, Lord, to do it in loving service of our world. And Lord, we think about this week ahead where you will send us out once again into the world, into the workplace, into homes, into our schools, into universities, where places in which you've put us, people that you've put us around, positions that you've given us, with the gifts that you've given us, the talents that you've given us, the training that we've been able to receive, and we have that opportunity to use those skills, those gifts, our time and our energy and our hearts to serve you and to serve the world that you've put us in. And so, Lord, we pray for your help in this next week to be able to give service with goodwill, to work out your will from our hearts, to give our all in what we put our hands to, that we might be able to bless and serve and share the love of God to the people that you put us around. Help us, Lord, I pray, to play our parts in serving you and serving our community. Lord, that we might be able to get to minister to you in our everyday life, in our home and in our work, with our hands and with the stuff that we do with so much of our time. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see how interested you are in our everyday life, that we are so tempted to write out as mundane and unimportant and insignificant, that actually is so, so deeply significant that the gospel would uh, completely uh, reimagine it and see it as the place in which we would get to be your people and show what it means to have found the love of God. So Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might fill us to do that because we, we know that that's a bit beyond just us working harder trying a bit better we, we know that really what we're asking is that the one who can do unimaginably more than than what we could ask would do that within us so spirit we pray you might fill us now amen